on today's episode of PolicyWise. You can climatize your coffee, your groceries, or even your gas, making every transaction an investment in climate action. That that's really your focus is decarbonization of our energy industry. Our best option can't be to just make cardboard sign. You know, those individual decisions that maybe don't move the needle on a macro scale, but might save a turtle. 90% of Americans were blocked from investing directly into clean energy infrastructure projects. How maybe you work with Climatize has been starting to democratize the environmental movement. Capital is the ultimate enabling commodity for the energy transition. It allows people to go out and deploy the tools that we already have to solve this problem. The scale at which we need to be implementing these projects is massive, like government level massive. One turtle at a time, right? But more on that later. Hello, policy-wise people. We are back again today with another very exciting episode. I'm Ellie. I'm co-hosting with Michael today, who, you know what? He might just be my favorite co-host. Sorry, oh, wow. Demi. She's she's listening here on this call. If she just came off off no video, give me a reaction to that. Um, <laughs> sorry, Demi. <laughs> um, we're here with a very exciting episode, something that's in my wheelhouse of environmental stuff, and we are joined today by our wonderful guest, Will Wiseman, who I will pass it to right now to give a little intro about himself. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Really excited to be here with you all. So my name is Will Wiseman, CEO and co-founder of Climatize. Uh, we are an app empowering anyone to start investing in climate projects with as little as one penny. And, and with the app, anyone can become a sustainable investor in minutes. Um, really excited to be here with you all and talk about kind of both policy and the intersection with energy. I think that it's really top of mind with things going on around the world and, and also here with your audience. Thanks, Will. It's, it's so nice to have you on the podcast. So you brought up Climatize. Um, do you think you could get into it a little bit more about like what it is exactly and how it works and I guess what your goal with it is? At a really high level, the vision with Climatize is building a global financial network for climate action. The kind of story of, of what brought us to building this company is that my co-founder, she and I met while doing a double master's degree in renewable energy engineering. Uh, we joined the global climate strikes in Barcelona. And we saw 100,000 people in the streets. And it was like nothing I had ever seen before. That level of activism was incredibly inspiring. And we were filled with this hope and this motivation, and yet we we're also hit by this deep sadness. Because we realized that we were all gonna go home the next day and nothing was gonna be different. And so we realized like our best option can't be to just make cardboard signs. If we can get 100,000 people together, there has to be a way to actually like transform and convert that energy and that motivation into tangible climate action. And so we really started pursuing this idea. What is it that everybody can contribute? And so we kind of came up with this idea of, you know, if everybody pitched in their spare change, then collectively that could mean, uh, you know, it would be a lot of money. And it would also make it so that 
we kind of moved the, the public from being neutral bystanders in the climate fight to really being active stakeholders in the overall you know, development and, and deployment of clean energy. So really with Climatize, uh, you can make a one-time investment, say five bucks or $500. Uh, you can also link Climatize with your credit card so that every time you make a purchase, the spare change from those purchases is, is being automatically invested into the project of your choice. Uh, you can climatize your coffee, your groceries, or even your gas, making every transaction an investment in climate action. And really, as the cherry on top, uh, we have a network of hand-picked sustainable brands, which offer discounts and incentives uh, for joining the climatized network. So, you know, by buying in and helping fight climate change, you're also getting all of these discounts, these really high-quality brands. And really here, what excites me the most about using crowdfunding is that it really opens up this asset class to everyone. Before Climatize, 90% of Americans were blocked from investing directly into clean energy infrastructure projects. Only accredited investors, meaning people with over a net worth of a million dollars or an annual income of over $200,000, could invest directly into these projects. And now what crowdfunding does is it opens up opportunities which have been previously you know, accessible only to wealthy individuals and offers them now to everybody. And that's provided that there's appropriate safeguards in place. But, you know, what we're doing is empowering the public to actually fund and deploy clean energy and, and really kind of act upon their moral desires. I just really love the verb of climatize. The way you use that in there to climatize your purchases. I love that. Climatize your gas even. I love yeah. that. That's so funny. Um, it, it seems like a really cool idea and it's something that, you know, I don't think most people would be able to come up with on the spot. And so it must have taken, you know, some time to think through it. And, and really, as you sit with the problem and try to analyze solutions to the problem, um, getting to, to the sort of solution. Can you walk us through some of your experience? You know, well, we met in college uh, a few years mm -hmm. ago. We're not that old yet. So it was just a few years ago. Um, and, you know, it's crazy how years develop in this way. Can you kind of walk us through how you how you got here? How did you start uh, in the environmental field? What's your background and, and how did you how'd you get to this point? Sure. Yeah. So other than a brief internship in a particle physics lab, uh, my entire career has been in climate tech. So I've been working in climate tech since I was 17. Uh, back then, I started out as a solar installer as a way to pay my way through college and then, um, you know, did mechanical engineering in uh, San Diego State, which is where you and I met. Um, and uh, through that, also did some work in AI for renewable energy renewable energy power forecasting, and then also in large scale electrical project management. And I think really what kind of began to inspire my transition into more of the finance space was after working on these large scale you know, solar projects, and seeing that it can take three to four years to develop some of these projects from, you know, a green field all the way to actual notice to proceed in operation. And what I felt like is that from an engineer's perspective, that, you know, if my career is 40, 50 years, do I really want my entire impact to be maybe 15, 20 projects? And my sense of what I wanted to create in the world was bigger than that. And so I started kind of digging in deeper and deeper about what is really the root cause? What's the root problem here? And when I came to the reality that, you know, a big problem is just the amount of capital that's moving into this space. We need to accelerate and create new streams of capital to flow in to fund these projects. Capital is the ultimate enabling commodity 
for the energy transition. It allows people to go out and deploy the tools that we already have to solve this problem. We just need to do it faster. And so that's where I realized that you know, after what I've done in terms of, you know, studying renewable energy engineering, doing nuclear science, hydrogen, all of this stuff, I realized that, you know, finance is something that you can rather be at the center of the equation. And, you know, having this technical background, being able to speak to all of the different technologies and understand them at their core level enables me to now go with a better insight into how do we support and fund these projects. I love it. I love it. Um, so it sounds like Climatize prioritizes investing in these clean energy projects. So, um, that that's really your focus is decarbonization of our energy industry. Um, can you give some examples of, of what some of those projects are and like where they're taking place? Is this like taking, are you focusing in the U S or abroad? Um, I'm just curious what the scope of, of your projects are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the first pilot project that we ran uh, was a solar array in Kenya. We raised $2,720 in seven days to be able to fund that. And that was just really, you know, testing the concept idea. Just last week, we also found uh, another 24 solar systems on uh, low income homes in Hollister. Uh, an area just kind of to the south of the Bay Area. These are going to be some of our pilot projects here in California. So really ramping up each one of these projects is only $8,300. That takes less than 500 people investing their spare change for a month. So these are how we're getting scale on these early days and really creating high impact projects that are not only beneficial to the environment, but also have a really great social impact. Uh, additionally, you know, we've signed a letter of intent with a company called Block Power. Uh, they're based out of uh, New York. They do energy efficiency upgrades for low to middle income tenants. They go in and help, you know, uh, add more insulation. They help uh, replace old boilers and heaters and replace them with heat pumps, which is a much more efficient technology in comparison to AC or, or traditional gas powered boilers. Those tenants not only uh, have the environmental benefits and the health benefits, but they actually save so much on their energy bill through these upgrades that they're able to repay the loan and still enjoy energy savings. So this is a way where, you know, the companies that we're funding are going into these communities and creating high paying jobs and really helping support individuals at a really grassroots and kind of bottom up style, which is how we really view ourselves positioning is kind of crowdfunding has the opportunity to be very authentic and community focused. And that's where really where we're going in and saying, you know, we've We've heard you. We've heard people say that they have distrust or, you know, kind of a breakdown of trust with greenwashing and, you know, ESG as a title has its flaws. And the reality is that with crowdfunding, you can see this project come to life before your eyes and, you know, really see the final product. And that relationship and engagement and narrative of bringing these projects together is something that's really deeply meaningful. Well, I'm kind of curious as you kind of outlay... Uh, some of the impact that you've been able to have looking at projects and how they've been able to scale up. Um, mm -hmm. But then also, you know, I, I can't help but think about individual decisions that get made to protect the environment. Um, folks choosing to to maybe go with a paper straw instead of a plastic straw or, you know, those individual decisions that maybe don't move the needle on a macro scale, but 
might save a turtle you know may, might make a smaller <laughs> might make a smaller impact one turtle at a time right um <laughs> i don't know how that popped out in my brain but anyway <laughs> um jared does a great job of making us sound great so i feel comfortable anyway so oftentimes engaging in individually environmentally conscious decisions is more expensive than not and so i'm curious <laughs> how maybe you work with climatize can or has been starting to democratize the environmental movement uh, into groups that maybe have been not able to afford uh, a more environmentally conscious car or, you know, again, those individual decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you raise a really great point. All of the individual decisions do add up. It's rather that unfortunately large industry, especially, you know, heavy machining, um, petrochemicals that underlie drug production, pharmaceuticals, the kind of macro energy system around electricity generation is just much more emissions than what you collectively create by, you know, switching to uh, paper straws. <laughs> now, the, the, the kind of where we see ourselves coming in is that oftentimes what people are making decisions on with sustainable brands, unfortunately, is the dollar amount in the store. Mm -hmm. And people make that decision based on their pocketbook. And what we're coming in and saying is that, hey, you know, we're giving you these discounts at these sustainable brands, making them actually cost competitive and helping you kind of become aware of really where the high quality products are. So you can make that switch in your daily life all while then further supporting these clean energy projects by investing. Yeah, absolutely. I like the way that you put that very concise and succinct and mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Point. And also to your point, I want to want to touch on one thing too. You know, yeah. you brought up the fact that oftentimes, you know, these projects say putting solar on your roof is not necessarily accessible to people who don't have a lot of, a lot of extra money. The reality is there are lots of barriers for people in that kind of low to middle income community areas and especially urban also. If you don't own your home, you can't put solar on the roof. Same mm -hmm. thing goes for EV charging. You know, if you don't own your home, you likely can't make those electricity upgrades. Uh, if you live in an urban environment, there may not be EV charging infrastructure around you in the first place. So what we're saying is, okay, we recognize these barriers and address them head on. By enabling you to invest in these projects with as little as, you know, a penny from your purchases, now you don't have to have that roof space. You can invest in these solar projects in and around your community and across the country and instead invest in the underlying assets, which are ultimately the things creating the change. You don't have to have it on your roof to still make a difference. Right. Absolutely. And that, that kind of leads me to a follow up question. Just thinking about maybe some of the, the businesses that you might be working with, um, thinking about, you know, the way that they might think of their projects and what I've maybe just seen just from my vision. And I don't, you know, uh, engage in these conversations as often as either of you might. And so this might be kind of a, a less informed perspective. But I've seen that a lot of the, the businesses, mostly small businesses that are trying to move the needle and bringing out, you know, more environmentally conscious uh, products tend to be a lot smaller and don't have as much access mm -hmm. to capital. And so what I'm hearing is that, you know, so some of what your work does is crowdsource for for their access to that sort of capital that's going to be able to move uh, move a project forward. Is that is that kind of accurate? And and where else, if that's accurate, where else do you feel like resources need to be added in? What do you think needs to change in order to make these projects a little bit more common? for lack of better terms. I mean, the, the capital component is a really important distinction. And unfortunately, there's still this stigma around needing to have returns 
or impact. And what we're realizing is that by coupling the two, it pays long-term dividends, not only in the way that customers view you and your brand, but also the reality that you're minimizing your risk into the future. You know, if you are susceptible, if you are a bank, for example, and you own a bunch of assets that are in a floodplain or, you know, potentially areas that are, you know, at risk of fire, you're exposed to these huge climate risks. You know, what we're doing is helping mitigate that that risk at an individual level. Now, to your point with the smaller companies, it is still challenging and we need to have more venture capital moving into this space. But that goes hand in hand with government incentives. It goes hand in hand with additional R&D investment from the government. And additionally, there is more philanthropic capital that could be deployed into the space. Just recently, John Doerr, who's one of the famous venture capitalists from Kleiner Perkins, he just published a book, Speed and Scale. And within that, he, you know, he lays out how the government needs to, you know, really lean into additional incentives for these programs, but also really begin to divest from all of the subsidies that we're providing to oil and gas companies. You know, yeah. the taxpayer dollars are going to these companies to keep gas prices artificially low. But, you know, all of a sudden you go to the gas pump, you look and it's now almost, what, $6.50 a, a gallon around here in Santa Cruz. And yet we are looking at these oil and gas companies and they have not increased their production quotas at all. And they know that they're still earning a killing at the pump. So it begs this question, like, you know, we're subsidizing these companies to keep prices artificially low while that has us on a trajectory to this kind of non-sustainable almost i don't want to say apocalyptic but very scary future if you look at the numbers actually just uh just a few days ago uh one of my professors also you know for the next two months or so still my boss um presented uh, and testified to the senate committee i wish i remembered which senate committee but a senate committee um and i, I watched it uh, online and it was part of what came up in kind of their conversation was um, was big oil and how mm -hmm. big oil was raking in record profits in 2021. As you know, gas prices go up, they're still bringing in record profits. Claim you know, citing other reasons as to why the numbers need to go up. But in 2022, you know, now they're now we're citing wars, a reason why you know we see almost six dollars past six dollars um, for gas, but they're still on track to get record profits in quarter one. Like they are on track <laughs> to break the amount of which they've ever made before, still citing mm -hmm. war costs and et cetera, et cetera. But laid off, I was, I was reading numbers. It was like they laid off 60,000 employees, but were still able to bring in record to their shareholders. And it's it's very fascinating because it's like, this isn't, this isn't the way this was supposed to happen. Like this isn't the way that, you know, people say that the free market is supposed to work. Economists know that, yeah, that was a theory. Um, and now we know that that theory is maybe not working. But basically what we're seeing is that people are putting profit over over people, putting profit over impact and the impact that things are having on the environment and the economy, that they're not separable. And I think that's kind of the point that you were trying to make is that they're not separable. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And you raised this, you know, gets into really the policy side and that, um, you know, the reality is that in America, we have Citizens United, which allows uh, corporations to donate funds to political campaigns as if they're just any individual. But they have an outsized voice 
in these, you know, behind the scenes, closed door meetings. Oftentimes, you know, a, a great book is Short Circuiting Policy by Dr. Leah Stokes from UCSB. Um, um, she, you know, has all of these great stories of really oil lobbyists having their own desk in a legislator's office. And, you know, that money that gets deployed at to lobby these companies makes a very, very big difference because mm -hmm. really where it's actually the most effective uh, dollar per dollar is at the state level. You know, at the federal level, you know, you it's hard to kind of steer that large of a ship. But even when you have these federal mandates or incentive programs, like we've seen, you know, the Biden has, Biden administration has been mildly successful with, you know, creating some new financial incentives. It actually comes in at the state level to actually implement and deploy that. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that if you have a breakdown at the state level where, yes, you may have a renewable energy mandate, but it's not actually being implemented by the regulators or those regulators have actually been funded and elected by the companies that are, you know, kind of counter to this policy, then even if you have this really great supporting legislation, it may not actually materialize in deploying clean energy or actually, you know, cost savings for the consumer. And so that's what we call regulatory capture. Mm -hmm. And this often happens at like the public utility commission level. You know, when you have those kind of local, smaller scale elections, it doesn't take a lot of money to tip the scale there. You know, getting people out to vote for those smaller positions that are not, you know, name ballot items, you know, it doesn't require quite as much capital. And if you then front load uh, the Public Utility Commission with people who are friendly to your agenda, they may not hold you to actually implementing that federal standard or that even state level standard. Yeah, I really I really love this conversation because it's getting at this whole thing where it's like, I feel like what Climatize is doing and attempting to do is um, really give power to people who maybe are in situations where they don't feel like their government is adequately representing what they want to see when it comes to a clean energy transition. So I'm really excited about this whole idea where it's like, here's this accessible way that people can feel like they're making a difference and actually physically contributing to projects that are that are helping with this transition particularly in situations where maybe the private sector or government spending isn't really um isn't really putting that money there but i'm curious um what how how far can we take this style of fundraising or like project implementation like i guess how do you visualize climatizing this style of um, fundraising to sort of mesh with government spending or private sector spending when it comes to clean energy development because um, obviously the scale at which we need to be implementing these projects is massive like government level massive so I'm really curious how how you visualize climatize and that style of fundraising I guess fitting into this overall overall scheme of what we need to be doing to to complete this transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you raise a really good point. I mean, part of what my vision is with this, and I don't want to, you know, make them out to be the bad guys, they do have a really important role in, you know, shifting the overall macro energy system and, and macro economy. But what I see our role is, is, is slightly enabling the public to step around these traditional gatekeepers like governments and and you know, large financial institutions, and really organize, organize ourselves both financially and socially to act and, and deploy this clean energy as quickly as possible so that we have the tools to actually take control of our future. Now, as for dollars invested, you know, the, the 
public retail investor market, the kind of, you know, our everyday person is actually an enormous pool of money. So uh, I believe it was Forbes reported that the millennial generation as of 2022 is inheriting $30 trillion worth of assets from wow. the baby boomer generation. And that is a really fundamental transition of wealth between generations. And not only that, it's the different morals that these uh, you know, generations have. And it's not that I'm saying that one is bad or the other, but rather that transition of actual you know, usable funds to generations that are more engaged on this topic enables us to really actively deploy that in a way that kind of fits more so with where we need to be to be, you know, providing ourselves with a sustainable future. Totally. I love that explanation. That was great. Um, I mean, I guess we've been talking a little bit about how climatize enables the individual. I think your words were to sidestep, you know, government in, in terms of funding some of these projects. But I'm curious how, um, I guess, government policy has allowed Climatize to be what it is. I know that in 2012, the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act or the Jobs Act um, was passed and signed into law by Obama and um, really kind of allowed greater access to crowdfunding, which is what Climatize relies on as, as, a, as a business model. So can you talk a little more to that about how the Jobs Act maybe enable you to to start Climatize or enable Climatize to be what it is today? Sure. Yeah. So the JOBS Act is a really, really pivotal key piece of legislation and really kind of creating the crowdfunding industry. The crowdfunding industry, I think, is deeply tied and associated to kind of the legacy platforms that came on. You think like your Kickstarter or your GoFundMe. They came on and, and it's deeply associated with those kind of product or campaign style raises. The reality is that crowdfunding is just opening up what used to be excluded to just the, the wealthy. Now, the JOBS Act was just amended uh, in April of 2021, increasing the ceiling that you can raise to from a million dollars up to five million dollars. And that's really fundamentally key in doing this for clean energy. So in Europe, the ceiling that you could raise with crowdfunding was 5 million euros. And it's been that way for a long time. They have a thriving renewable energy crowdfunding ecosystem. There are 37 competitors uh, investing about 5 billion euros through this framework of, of kind of citizen participation and investment. In the US, that ceiling down at a million dollars made it really challenging to actually deploy meaningful clean energy just because of the capital expenses to build projects that, you know, A, as a company owner, you can get sufficient margins on, but B, that actually represent economies of scale and that you can actually, you know, diligence with, you know, appropriate protections and all. So that's where we see now that this, this ceiling has been increased to $5 million. We can suddenly be a really first mover in helping transplant best practices from Europe over to the US and looking to recreate that, that ecosystem here. Now, one thing is that, you know, in Europe, it's very fractured. They have 27 different countries 27 different regulators, 23 different languages. And there is, you can see how the complexity is, is exponentially compounding. In the US, we have a roughly homogeneous market with 330 million people, one regulator, the SEC, one currency, and really one primary language with, with Spanish as well in there as, as two. So 
all of a sudden, this is a much bigger market that's more kind of culturally comfortable with investing and really provides opportunities for us to, again, kind of sidestep that, that legacy bank or the government to really accelerate this transition. And I think not only is it in the money that we deploy that's really important, but it's also the social movement that goes hand in hand with it. It's that as you get people engaged with these projects, you know, if we can get you in for one penny, and begin making you feel more comfortable to teach you about the industry, to really show you that these are safe and that they're creating impact in your community, we can start with these little tiny actions that begin to help us move the needle and make people feel more comfortable that scale into larger actions down the line. So it's not purely valued in the currency that we're deploying, which is really that's the business and, and that's how we stay alive. But there's the intangible component of actually creating a movement with which helps people, you know, kind of collectively feel like they're part of something greater than themselves. I love that. I'm so excited about the potential of, of Climatize <laughs> given this Jobs Act update as of last year. Um, I, you've, you've spoken a bit about how I, I think Climatize, you were really incentivized to start this because of this kind of grassroots community level activism that you saw um, in Europe when you were studying there. And mm -hmm. and I think that this kind of community based model of like we're all just individuals who want to make a change that are are doing what we can to kind of um, push this clean energy transition forward. I'm, I'm curious if there's any parts of Climatize in terms of how it actually functions um, for the individual that promote this sort of communal type of um, just this type of environmental community or like grassroots community. And if, if there's any plans to to kind of mesh this sort of crowdfunding model with some sort of social network model or something that that helps expand what it means to be um, part of the environmental community, both as an activist, but also as someone who's investing what they can um, financially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really great point. And it's something that we're actively really thinking about is, you know, we're trying to make it so within your account, you know, you have kind of a social score, a kind of who are you as an individual climate contributor and try and make that something that people are proud of, you know, that as you, you know, invest into projects that you can then share that to social media to help bring people into the community. Additionally, like how can we make this competitive and fun? You know, I think it's something that has been kind of lost in the conversation is that, you know, this is an enormous opportunity aside from the crisis, it's an opportunity. And that if we look to make this a fun experience of like, how do we save the world together? There's a lot of opportunity for us to kind of tap into our more, you know, kind of primal habits and make this something that brings you together as a community and, you know, that we can be competitive about this. Like, wouldn't it be great in the world if we looked at it instead of, you know, a crisis, but rather like, how can I make the most difference and actually be rewarded for that? Like a competitive style of impact is something we haven't really seen yet. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of fascinating. Um, just thinking about how you can take this idea and almost like cultural I almost like culturatize, <laughs> but <laughs> just thinking about climatize as, as an, as an action, but put it like mixing it in with culture, utilizing kind of what, what is already there, but kind of creating something new out of it. I can, I can already see kind of, uh, I can, I can already see it taking a local turn in case you all want to go down mm -hmm. this route in which communities, mm -hmm. like you can have like a, like, you know, let's say like a community park and say, Hey y'all, if you want this park, 
you know, here's one way in which we can pay for it, sidestepping the government mm-hmm. or, you know, any private and maybe private investors into something like this and say, you can create your own project and have it crowdfunded and have it be environmentally mm-hmm. conscious. And you have a large amount mm-hmm. of people who would look at your project and donate. I can already see this as an easy way of getting things done within your local community that honestly, high schoolers can even bite their teeth into um, mm-hmm. and, and think about how to change their community. As I'm, you know, kind of thinking about the Jobs Act and getting into my policy brain on things, um, I'm thinking about how, like, to the government, this is a rather minor change to go from, mm-hmm. you know, one million or is it billion? It was one million. A million. Right? So a million okay, yeah. to five million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got it. Okay. One million to five million. Um, mm-hmm. Like, that's that's a relatively easy, quote unquote, decision for the government to make. You're not mm-hmm. asking for a, an increase in taxes on anybody. You're not, you know, I can imagine that not even being that you know, partisan um, and just being like, okay, it's just a kind of an administrative change, so to speak. Mm -hmm. What are some Mm -hmm. other policy ideas that are easy, quote unquote, that would make a large difference in how we are able to better navigate our care for the environment? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say some of the well, none of them are particularly easy, I think, is the, <laughs> the kind of unfortunate answer. But yeah. there's ways to be very systematic about it. I mm-hmm. think the first thing that we could do is require more transparency and, you know, transparency as well as disclosure about risk and environmental impact. It's something that the SEC is currently working on is forcing, uh, you know, public companies to disclose their emissions and what like climate risk poses to their business plan. Mm. This is something that we're flying completely blind on right now. There is no real risk disclosure about companies that have adverse uh, potential risk to, you know, climate disasters, whether that be fire, sea level rise or flooding. And so that in itself can help us guide our decision making about, you know, what companies are really contributing to the problem, what companies are making a difference. And at least if we're measuring and aware of something, anything that can be measured can be improved. And so with that, we can begin to create these kind of incentive programs with which companies can actually look at their balance sheet and say, okay, you know, these are the different subsidy programs we can begin to tap into. Here's how we fund this, you know, and and really look to make those step changes. So, you know, at the moment, uh, a real challenge is just Pardon my kind of just brain fart there. <laughs> no, 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 no. Go like yeah. this is not an easy question for me to ask. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, let me think on this one. What's a really good one? I can speak to. So there are two ways that we can also look at like policy. Some of them being very constructive, and some of them potentially presenting risks that mm-hmm. we didn't necessarily think through entirely. So one example of that is that, you know, the U.S. government is currently looking at it, like applying heavy tariffs to uh, solar production facilities out of Southeast Asia. They have tried to, you know, kind of yeah. shrink the product dumping from Chinese solar manufacturers into Southeast Asia. So Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, et cetera. Um, if those tariffs are applied, it's going to mean a really like a major spike 
in prices for solar panels here in the US, which could possibly mm -hmm. destabilize kind of the economic viability of the industry. And looking at that, that is one policy decision that may really slow down the like, deployment of solar in particular. And why mm -hmm. this really matters is that all of a sudden it completely halts the ability to finance these projects because you're suddenly looking at potential spike like cost increases within the supply chain that as an investor, if you're saying I'm investing in this project with these expected returns, but all of a sudden there's going to be a cost spike in the materials that you need to actually build those projects, then you have this regulatory risk that may completely derail the financial viability of those projects. And yeah. so we've seen this real slowdown in deployment of solar recently while we wait on really what's going to be the outcome of that policy decision. So, you know, it's important for us to be building the manufacturing capability here in the United States so that we have energy security and the ability to deploy and manufacture these projects here like on America, on American soil using American, you know, labor and manufacturing, it, mm. it is an important step for us to build up those capabilities. But at the same time, if we do that at the cost of completely stopping the industry, then you have to look at really what's the net benefit there. And are we really doing this in the most effective way possible? I think also something like to your point, where like, I wouldn't call them easy victories, but we do need to help like clear up some of the narrative, at least in the like federal conversation around energy jobs in the US. So there's often this conversation, and I saw, you know, Joe Manchin really, really beat the table on this when kind of derailing the Build Back Better uh, bill. He really mm -hmm. went to bat for saying we need to protect these coal jobs and and make sure that, you know, they are appropriately considered in this transition. There are 40,000 coal jobs in the US. That's it. There are 230,000 <laughs> solar jobs. And wow. so we are really holding up this group as if it is like the be all end all. And it's an important consideration in the energy transition. But we shouldn't let that completely derail the conversation of how do we actually you know, build a, a more resilient American manufacturing industry? How do we transition people to new high paying jobs that are, you know, ultimately benefiting the environment? But, you know, when done thoughtfully, we can create job programs to really help these people transition in their careers. And personally, I really think that if you really cared about coal miners, you would get them out of coal mines. That is like the worst <laughs> thing for their health. <laughs> right. No, literally at the end of the day. <laughs> But that's never a popular thing for a politician to say to a bunch of coal miners, uh, especially when no. they've been doing it for generations. Uh, it's why the energy transition is such a challenging project, because it yeah. is not only at the technical, like, technical level, you have the economic considerations. Energy underpins the global economy and is deeply tied to kind of the geopolitical balance in the world. Look at countries that have outsized power because of their petro resources. Russia is a great example, Saudi Arabia, and even Venezuela. You have these kind of, you know, governmental regimes that have been able to stand on their own on the basis of oil. And, you know, if we transition over to, you know, renewable energies, there is not a proper owner of the sun or the wind. And, you know, 
Europe in particular sees enormous advantages in making the energy transition to wane themselves off of, you know, Russian natural gas. But mm -hmm. also uh, Europe on the whole is, you know, somewhat resource poor when it comes to fossil fuels. They have coal and, and some natural gas, but very limited oil. For them, it's completely advantageous for them to be building solar and wind resources that they have and are free so that they can then be energy secure on their own and not, you know, have this kind of price volatility. We've seen natural gas prices quadruple in Europe because of the conflict in Ukraine. That is going to really squeeze the consumer and, and potentially erode the appetite for this transition to clean energy if we don't get out ahead of this and recognize that, you know, there's real opportunities for energy security, but also, you know, kind of geopolitical stability. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's all interconnected. I think there's, you mm -hmm. know, as we, we started that conversation uh, it, it mentioned the coal, you know, that goes into reskilling. And so now you're going to get higher ed folks in the room talking about how do you, you know, how do you reskill somebody and get them into a new job if we're going to make this transition? Again, keeping that tie between the environment and the economy. It's very hard mm -hmm. to separate them, especially when it's so geopolitical, as you mentioned. I, I, think you you hit on this when you brought up how tariffs can kind of really even in just like one place can really impact the ability to um, access and expand these renewable energy technologies that we need to to spur this clean energy transition and i i kind of want to broaden up that conversation and ask about um how the government is is investing in and kind of incentivizing or de-risking these technologies that we need. Obviously, this transition, um, as you brought up, it's like not just technology-wise, but just cultural-wise or socially, like a huge ask of people to to transition away from the status quo that we have. And that applies also for our infrastructure. And we need to be implementing a bunch of new technologies not previously implemented on a big scale. So I, I wanted to kind of follow up and ask if you have some knowledge on what the government is currently doing um, to incentivize this or to de-risk these technologies and maybe in doing so make it easier for um, a format such as climatize a crowdsourcing format to to also be able to take part in this transition um, and make it easier. Fortunately, the government really is beginning to lean into looking at these early stage projects and how do they kind of get them over the valley of death, where, you know, particularly with hardware, there's a long life cycle of R&D and then really, you know, kind of early prototyping lab work to get to a commercialization scale is, is a long and challenging path. Now, fortunately, there are new institutions coming in and, and really beginning to, you know, help support this both financially and with mentoring as well. Uh, Climatize wouldn't be where it is today without the New York State Energy Research and Development Agency. We were grant recipients from, from NYSERDA, and that proved to be really catalytic capital, but as well as the network that they helped us create was pivotal in us like getting in the room with the right people to have these conversations about how do we, you know, bring in public capital and alternative finance into helping you deploy these projects. Additionally, uh, recently, Jigger Shaw has taken over at the Department of Energy's uh, loan programs office, which is really, it's a high bar to be able to get funding for these projects. But these are projects that could pull, you know, I think their criteria is something like a gigaton of carbon is the bare minimum that you need to be able to pull, uh, you know, from the energy system to really be viable for one of these grants. But they're coming in and now deploying 
uh, lots of money in particular into hydrogen. Um, we've seen now a number of shots at fusion technologies uh, that's being you know really increasing, especially in the venture capital space. The nuclear conversation is kind of increasing in, in relevancy again. And then additionally, there's SBIR grants, which are you know kind of really tailored towards helping these hardware companies get off the ground because you know they're more capitally intensive to prove out um, you know the viability. Well, I just want to I just want to say is you're kind of going through these and I'm sitting here like Googling a bunch of things that you're saying because I'm, I'm new to this conversation, but also want to be able to keep up. Um, mm -hmm. and, and as we start to transition to closing out a little bit, first, you're inspiring, not only to me, but I think to others uh, who are probably listening to this, who's thinking about how to turn their passions into change and like, how do you actually mm -hmm. go about that and go about pursuing a new idea and kind of um, entering a new field or even creating a new field? So what would you say to young people who are listening, who want to make a difference in the world, related to serving, saving our planet or otherwise, maybe what do you wish you knew or what would you like to tell a younger you or, or um, someone who's listening in and passionate but doesn't know what to do? Well, I think the first and easiest thing to say is that, you know, you'll never be ready for this journey. Just dive in. It's something that, you know, people wait for this moment to come along when they think they're going to be ready. And the only moment is now. We need all hands on deck to really start pushing this forward. And additionally, the energy transition has a need for skill sets in every aspect of the economy. So I think people often think that, you know, being, a, being active in climate means you have to be an engineer. There are lots of jobs for designers, for marketing. How do we thoughtfully communicate this and educate people? You know, there's space for those technical roles, software engineers, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. But additionally, you know, if you're in sales and you don't love your job, come do sales for a company that's saving the world. Like, don't waste time on just getting that, that paycheck. You can get that same paycheck and better at these companies. These companies are on the rise. And, you know, if you look at the amount of venture capital that's now flowing into these companies, there are huge opportunities. And to think that, you know, if you don't love your job, that, that there's not another alternative. No, we need you. We need you in every single role. And that is what I would really love to communicate to people is that like, whether you're doing this by investing whether you're doing this by investing your time and energy, you know, whether you're doing this just by starting to educate yourself and get involved, like we need you, we need everybody. And so I think that, you know, this has oftentimes been framed as something that, you know, we are outsiders to know, come message me on LinkedIn. I will set you up. I will find a job that is ready for you. It is my side passion of getting people involved in this. And, you know, there are all kinds of resources, job boards that have started really popping up. I would say Climate Base is a really great example of a company that has done really well recently. And, you know, they have jobs for everyone to join climate and begin becoming, you know, a real fighter in this, this journey. Beautiful advice. Beautiful advice. I, I always love when people say that because it's so true. I mean, as daunting and complex as this problem is, the solution is equally as comprehensive. And there's so many, so many different places to tap in and the fight against climate change, both even like inside the clean energy transition and also in all the other components of fighting climate change. So I really love that that you brought that up. I think there's a place for everyone within this movement. Um, and yeah, as Michael said, you are impressively 
knowledgeable about this and I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to hear your insight about these topics. I obviously I'm studying everything climate related in college and want to go into this field, but I don't think that the intersection of, I guess, like renewable energy financing is is not really a, a niche that I'm I'm familiar with. So this has been super exciting for me to, to get to hear from you speak about this. And I'm so excited to see how Climatize expands and grows and all the great work that you guys will do in the future. So thank you so much, Will, for spending your noontime this Thursday with us. Um, I hope you get a lunch break after this. Um, thank you again so much. It was, it was great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here with you both. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and share. And, you know, I please invite anybody to, you know, sign up for Climatize, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I am happy to help in any way. And, you know, I think this is something we achieve together. So, you know, grateful to be able to spread the mission and, and help inspire. Thanks, Will. It's been a pleasure. This was PolicyWise, an intergenerational podcast by Youth Leadership Institute focused on bringing young people into the policy conversation. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PolicyWisePod. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss, please slide into our DMs or send us an email at policywise at yli.org. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes.